Well, Shalom. So glad to be back in the house with you tonight, the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's very, uh, very honored, of course, to have Pastor Ron invite me back again to come and speak about the book of Revelation through the eyes of, uh, of the Jewish people and, and of course, through the Messianic understanding as well. And the great irony, and I have, feel like I have to share it with you, is that that uh, we have not really done a formal teaching at, at our congregation on end-time events. Not really. So what I decided to do is put together a, a three-sermon series, you might say, for Wednesday night teaching. And we did that for our people and kind of gave, I gave them what I'm about to share with you. That's the first time we've ever done that. Well, that, that evening I went back into my office and lo and behold there was a voicemail from your pastor saying, hey, I'd like for you to come on a Wednesday night and share about end time events. So I said, well maybe the, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is saying something to His people and getting us ready. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to open up in prayer as we invite the Spirit of the Lord to help us to understand His Word tonight. Adonai, we just bless you. We thank you, Father, for your precious, precious Word and your precious Spirit in this place. And for these precious people, Adonai, that you have drawn by your Ruach, by your Spirit. We ask you tonight to anoint the teaching to, Father, open all of our eyes and all of our ears to, to read your word and understand it, to hear your voice and follow it. In Yeshua's mighty name we pray. Amen. Alright, I want to, I want to begin tonight. I gave you this, a handout. I want to be basically, uh, more or less following that handout. I want to begin by painting for you a background picture because when it comes to understanding revelation or end time events, of course there are quite a number of um, uh, various opinions on this and insights and what have you. Um, I happen to be of the uh, viewpoint that in order to fully understand the book of Revelation and to fully understand end time events, you, it's important that we understand God's prophetic calendar. His feast season. When I was with you last time, we spoke about the Feast of Tabernacles. And I think I gave a little bit of a background to Tabernacles so that you can kind of understand that. It's kind of hard to talk about the end of the book when you haven't really talked about the first part of a book. And so tonight I'm going to give you a background, as it were, to the feast uh, season, the latter-day feast season, what's called in Judaism the High Holy Days. So because I believe it, it, it causes or puts a template up for us to understand the book of Revelation. I want to begin by talking to you about the month of Elul, the month of Elul, which is the sixth month of the biblical calendar. The sixth month of the biblical calendar. It gets a little bit confusing because in Judaism, just to give you an example, there, there are actually uh, two calendars. There's a biblical calendar and then there's the civil calendar. Elul is the sixth month on God's calendar. The first month is Nisan. That's the month of Pesach, the month of Passover, the month where our Lord was crucified, buried, and resurrected. The sixth month is Elul, and the seventh month is the month of Tishrei, the month of Tishrei, the seventh month. Now, in Judaism, it's understood that God created the heavens and the earth in the seventh month, the month of Tishrei. And the reason for that is because the rabbis were able to take the first verse uh, from or the first phrase of the first verse of the book of Breshit, or the book of Genesis, turn it around and uh, manipulate one letter, and basically it reads in Hebrew on the first of Tishri. So in the beginning, turned around in Hebrew, manipulate one letter, it reads on the first of Tishri. And so by that, the rabbis declared that 
the Lord created the heavens and the earth and thereby created mankind on the first of Tishrei. And so as a result, the Jewish New Year is Rosh Hashanah, which means in Hebrew, the head of the year. Rosh Hashanah. Uh, the biblical word for that is Yom Teruah, but we're going to get to that in just a second. The month of Elul being the sixth day, sixth uh, month of the year, vis-a-vis or the twelfth month of the year, okay, it's the sixth and the twelfth, because the first of Tishrei is the first of the seventh month, and it's the first of the Jewish New Year. Now, I'm of the opinion that the rabbis are right. Why am I of the opinion? Because it makes sense to us as Americans that God would would create something in the first month. But then again, we're not God. God likes the number seven. And so for him to create the heavens and the earth during the seventh month, to me, makes sense. Do we know if that's for sure or not? No, the Bible doesn't really tell us so, but to me, I think it is. That's neither here nor there. But the sixth month, nevertheless, is called the month of Olul, and it's known in Hebrew as the month of mercy. It's known as the month where the king is in the field, where he leaves his heavenly throne and comes near to his people to draw close to them, to beckon them to return. The reason is, is because the first of Elul begins what's called the uh, season of Teshuvah. I think I shared a little bit about this last time I was here, but it begins a 40-day period of Teshuvah. And the reason for that is, is because the rabbis understand that there's something unique and special about Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets that's coming up on the first of Tishrei. And so every month during the month of Elul, the shofar is blown every day of the month of Elul for 30 days in order to warn people to repent. The idea of blowing the shofar is to warn them to turn back to Adonai, to turn back to His ways, to turn back to His commandments, because the day of judgment is approaching. And that day of judgment, one of the two days of judgment in Jewish thought, is the Feast of Trumpets. It's all very important. How many of you have ever seen or, or heard a shofar? I brought one with me tonight because I said last last time I should have brought it. This is a shofar. This happens to be off of the uh, the skull of a kadu. Okay, you can see those at the Fort Worth Zoo. They actually have kaduim or kadus in the in the, the zoo. Uh, the shofar can be a ram's horn, can be the horn of a kadu, can be the horn of an antelope, can be anything except the horn of a cow or the horn of an ox. And the reason is is because of the golden calf incident. It's true. That's why. Uh, because of the golden calf issue, they did, they did not, they consider the horn of a cow uh, to be non-kosher when using it for the purposes of blowing the shofar. But in the Word of God where it says trumpet, nine times out of ten, it's talking about the shofar. Okay? I'm going to blow the shofar for you a little bit later. But this is the shofar. And so, that's what it's talking about when it says the trumpet. Now, every day during in the in the synagogue nowadays, and uh, you know in the temple back in ancient times, the the shofar was blown to get people ready for the coming day of judgment, which is the feast of trumpets. Now, I don't want to confuse you, but there's I want you to remember there in Jewish thought there's two days of judgment. There's the judgment for the believer, the saints, as it were. Uh, which is Rosh Hashanah, and then there's the judgment for the non-believer, which is Yom Kippur, the great white throne judgment. Okay, two judgments. In fact, in Jewish thought, it's understood that on the day of resurrection, there are essentially three groups of people. 
there are those who are wholly righteous, those who are believers, those who are committed to the Lord. They're going to be saved immediately. There are those who are in-betweens, the intermediaries, those who are neither hot nor cold, they're lukewarm. Those are going to go through the days of repentance and be given an opportunity to repent. And if they repent before the great white throne judgment, then they shall be saved. And if they don't, then those shall be cursed, sent to hell, essentially. And then there are those, the Rishon, those who are wholly wicked. Those who have already made their decision. They've already rejected the Lord. They've already rejected His ways. And they, on the day of judgment, will be sealed for their doom. That's in Jewish thought. That's what the rabbis understand. Um, when I first read that many years ago, uh, I thought, oh, I just debunked it completely. Oh, that's silly. As I began to look at the book of Revelation, however, I began to wonder, maybe the rabbis are right. And we'll see in just a second. Let's look at the Feast of Trumpets, because this is critical to understanding, I believe, the the um, idea of a of a calling up as of a uh, rapture, the idea of what's spoken of in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking at the book of Re- Revelation, some verses there specifically on the back side of your page. I've put together a uh, uh, a diagram, if you will, of the messianic viewpoint. And understand when I say messianic viewpoint of the end times. I'm painting with a broad brush. That's not to say that there aren't Messianic believers out there who would disagree with me. Certainly there are. Uh, I'm presenting to you a broad brush um, scope of things. The Feast of Trumpets is also called in the Bible Yom Teruah, which translates the day of the blowing of the shofar, the day of the blowing of the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. Remember uh, last time I said that even though it's the word feast, it actually means appointed time in Hebrew. It doesn't mean a bunch of eating, although we do eat, uh, but it's a it's a it's an appointed time. It's moedim in Hebrew. Yom Teruah actually translates uh, quite literally the day of shouting, the day of shouting. Um, so this is just an extra. I won't charge you extra for this, uh, but the, the the trumpet is supposed to represent God's voice, God's voice. In fact, John said in the book of Revelation, he said, "I heard a voice." And it sounded like a shofar. It, in other words, it translates trumpet. I heard a voice and it sounded like a trumpet. And he turned around and lo and behold, it was the Lord. It was the Son of Man. It was the Lord who was speaking to him. The voice of the shofar is supposed to uh, replicate the voice of God. Now, God is the first one, by the way, who blew the shofar in Scripture. The very first reference to the shofar is found in Exodus chapter 19. And God is the one blowing it. It says that the people drew close to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah from the Lord, to receive the commandments from the Lord. And they heard a shofar blast that grew louder and louder and louder. He was the, God is the first one to blow the shofar, and He shall be the last one to blow the shofar. Hallelujah for that. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 23 through 24 says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month, that's Tishrei, you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Rosh Hashanah is also called, and this is in your handout, Rosh Hashanah is also called Yom Hadin. Yom Hadin, which means the day of judgment. And according to the Talmud, which is an ancient book of of Jewish writing and, and oral Torah, oral law, the resurrection of the dead is to occur 
on this day of judgment, the Rosh Hashanah, the Yom Hadin, the day it, this ought to excite us. Because what I love about studying the Hebrew roots of the, of the faith is that it, it, all it does, or the main thing it does, is it solidifies our faith in the Messiah. And what I want to point out to you, one of the key things I want you to see in this, primarily as we're talking about the book of Revelation, is that the idea of a resurrection, the idea of end time events, the idea of an apocalypse, is not a Christian phenomenon. This is not something that the disciples made up. This is not something that was shown to John, um, uh, you know, like he's never heard of this, the resurrection of the dead, the calling up of people. When the Apostle Paul said at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise, he was, that was not something he was just given uh, revelation of by the Spirit of God necessarily. I mean, this is a, he, he as a uh, Pharisee, as a rabbi, that would have been a common understanding. Now, what's happened to the disciples is that the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has given them revelation. That's why the book of Revelation is called Revelation. Is because the Spirit of God has given them revelation about what all this means now. But the Jews understand that the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the righteous, is going to occur on Rosh Hashanah, on the Feast of Trumpets. The feast that no man knows the day or the hour. I love this. This phrase, the feast that no man knows the day or the hour. How many of you have heard that? No man knows the day nor the hour, okay? You've heard people say that to us as believers, you know, and I, I listen, I, I'm a firm believer that nobody should try to be uh, uh, setting a date for the end times. That's just not, I mean, that's not kosher, okay? We shouldn't try to do that, right? The Word of God says, uh, you know, people have said to us as believers, um, well, you know, the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, and no man knows the day or the hour. And we kind of get scared like, ooh, yeah. Well, that's not necessarily true to the believer. The Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour, that it'll come to, like, the Lord will come like a thief in the night, but not to you, my brethren. Not to you, my brethren. In fact, he says, the Apostle Paul says to the believers, I don't need to write you concerning the times or the seasons. Why? Because Gentile believers and Jewish believers we're all going to synagogue on the Sabbath, and they were hearing what I'm teaching you today. They were understanding Rosh Hashanah equals the rapture. No one has to write us about the times of the seasons. We know the times of the seasons. But if the Lord said, no man knows the day or the hour except my father. And this is a Jewish idiom for the Feast of Trumpets. That's what Jewish writing says. It's an idiom for the Feast of Trumpets. Why is it an idiom for the idiom for the Feast of Trumpets? The reason is, is because Rosh Hashanah is the only feast of the Lord that falls on the new moon. Now, the new moon is when there is essentially no moon. That's the new moon. And what would happen in ancient times is someone who's appointed by the Sanhedrin, or the elders, would go out and watch the sky because they couldn't celebrate the festival of the new moon every month or Rosh Hashanah until you saw the little sliver of the new moon. And when they would see the little sliver of the new moon, at that moment, the elders would call for the priests and the Levites to blow the shofarim or shofarot. And they would begin to blow the shofars all over the land 
as the Word of God commands in Numbers chapter 10. And everybody at that moment would begin to celebrate the feast. And so therefore it was called the feast where no man knows the day or the hour. Because you can kind of calculate, and today's scientists have more or less calculated the, you know, the day of the new moon and, but really nobody knows when it's actually going to fall exactly and at what hour it's going to fall. Particularly if you understand the biblical day, because the biblical day begins at sundown, not sunrise. And so you could be on a Friday and the new moon could begin to show its sliver right before dark and it might be the day before. Or if it shows after dark, it might be the day, the next day. You, you understand what I'm saying? The bottom line is, is that no one knows the day or the hour. So when Messiah says no one knows the day or the hour, he's, he was giving his disciples a Jewish idiom that they would have well understood. Now, Rosh Hashanah, on this day, there are a series of trumpet blasts. The Apostle Paul, Rab Shaul, as he's called in Hebrew, said that at the last trump, the dead and Messiah shall rise. If there's a last trump, it stands to reason there must be trumps before it. You can't be last if there hasn't been somebody ahead of you. Who would stay, stand in the line at a grocery store where no one else is in line and somebody says, oh, you're in line. Yes, I'm last. Right? No one would say that. So there has to be a series of trumpet blasts. Now, on Rosh Hashanah, there are a series of trumpet blasts. The last trumpet blast, the trumpeter was supposed to take in as much air as he could hold and blow a long blast on the shofar as long as he possibly could blow it. And it was called the Tekiah Hagedola, which is the last great blast. And it was at this trumpet blast that the days of awe would really begin. The days of repentance leading up to Yom Kippur would begin. The last great trumpet blast. The Talmud also calls this feast Yom HaKeseh. Yom HaKeseh. Which means the day of concealment. The day of concealment. Why was it called the day of concealment? Because the new moon is concealed by the darkness until it begins to show its sliver. So it's called the Day of Concealment. How many of you know that when Noah and his sons and their wives and all the animals were in the ark, that God closed the ark? Scripture says that God closed the ark. Not Noah. They didn't pull chains and pull the ark door shut. God closed the ark. The Lord concealed them from the judgment. The Scripture talks about the children of Israel were in the land of Goshen, protected from the plagues. Even though the plagues were pelting Egypt in Goshen, they were saved. They were concealed. When they went into their huts with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the, of the huts, whoever was in the house, whether you were a Jew or an Egyptian, you were concealed from the Lord's judgment. The Lord always protects His people from His judgment, from His wrath, you might say. And lastly, concerning the Feast of Trumpets, shofarot, which is plural for shofars, are commonly found on Jewish tombs, on ancient Jewish tombs, because it was synonymous with resurrection. Archaeologists have found uh, Jewish uh, ossuaries, where they keep the bones and so forth, with 
shofars uh, engraved on, on them. Why? Because it was just common knowledge that the sound of the shofar equaled resurrection, the calling up of, of the righteous. In fact, I quoted here in your handout from a popular prayer book, Jewish prayer book, and it says, The sages teach that it will be the sound of the great shofar that will on the last day rend open the graves and cause the dead to rise. Thus, the messianic hope, resurrection, immortality of the soul are intertwined with the message of the shofar. I am firmly convinced that the resurrection, the rapture, is going to occur on Rosh Hashanah sometime. I'm firmly convinced of that. That it will be during the season of Rosh Hashanah. And I think it's interesting that uh, we know on the Hebrew calendar it falls on the first of Tishri. Uh, that's when the Lord says, on the first of Tishri. That's how they would know it was the first of Tishri, actually. Uh, on our English calendars, it fluctuates. Sometimes it's in September, sometimes it's in October. It kind of goes back and forth. So really, on our end of things, we really don't know the day or the hour. You know, is he coming back in September? Is he coming back in October? Do I need to dress for warm weather or for cold weather? The Word of God says, ready, right? But I'm firmly convinced it's going to take place during the season. I want to share with you an interesting uh, Jewish midrash talking about the last trump. Where would Paul get this phraseology, the last trump? A Jewish midrash, by the way, is, is uh, essentially uh, uh, taking the Scripture and elaborating it. Uh, adding story into it to try to get the background. Um, this is done commonly in, uh, in Judaism, and there's a whole book of Midrashim. And uh, actually, it's done fairly commonly in the Christian church, where pastors sometimes we hear a story, and, and we're trying to relate a story through the Word of God, but then we add a little bit of context to it. You know, can you imagine what Thomas was saying, you know, when, or felt when the Lord said, uh, you're, you know, you, you've seen, you've believed because you've seen, but blessed are they who, who, uh, believe and have not seen. You know, we go and do some, like, a midrash about that. But there is an ancient midrash that says that when, when Abraham, Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah to offer him as, as the sacrifice during what's called in Hebrew the Akidah or the binding, that, uh, of course, it's understood that the, the angel of the Lord stopped him and he didn't slay his son, but instead provided a ram caught in the thicket. Well, the Midrash goes on to say that, that the Lord took that ram and it was burned, of course, as a burnt offering, but the Lord resurrected the lamb and took the horns of that lamb, or a ram rather, took the horns, and the first ram's horn was, he blew, the Lord blew at Mount Sinai. Okay? And it says that the, la- the other, the left ram's horn, the Lord will blow at the end of the age when he calls up his righteous. And that last ram's horn is, guess what? It's called the last trump in Judaism. It's the last trump. They understand. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that from ancient times, Jews have understood that the resurrection is going to occur at the last trump. They understand this. This is not a mystery to them. Now, you know, whether or not uh, they all, you know, there's different ideas, but essentially in Judaism there's different thoughts about the end time events and so forth. Uh, when Messiah will come, different sects of Judaism believe different things, but I'm talking to you about what the Talmudic writings, what basically they hold dear, uh, talk about. Now, 
Yom Kippur and the days of all. Continue on. There is a paradigm. This is what I want you to see. There is a paradigm. There are the the days of Elul, the 30 days of Elul, 30 days that lead up to Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. From Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, those days in between are called the days of awe. The days of awe. And there, in today's time frame, Judaism understands them to be days of repentance. It's an opportunity that if you've missed it by Rosh Hashanah, if, if you haven't come to the Lord by then, but, but you make an effort and you repent and, in Judaism, if you give tzedakah and begin to live a righteous life during this time frame, that the, the Lord will judge you favorably on Yom Kippur. And guess what? On Yom Kippur, the Jews say that the Lord opens His books and begins to judge. And therefore, there is a blessing that's said during this time that is, L'shanatovatikatevu, which means, may you be blessed and sealed for a good year because the Jews understand that Yom Kippur happens from year to year and so you want to be judged favorably for each and every year. And so during this time, the prayers for Selichot, the prayers of forgiveness are spoken and Jews come to the synagogue and they make amends with one or another because the Jewish understanding is that God can't forgive you if you haven't forgiven your brother. And so in the synagogue, time is taken for uh, those who maybe ha- are at odds with one another to go and make amends and bury the hatchet. Jewish people are encouraged to call your brother, call your sister, call your friends, and if you have odd against them, you know, drop it. Because Adonai cannot forgive you unless you forgive them. How many of you know that that's exactly what the Lord taught us? Amen? So the days of all begin. Yom Kippur is known as the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. This is the day where the sins of the Jewish people were essentially uh, covered. And that's what it means, actually, to cover. They were covered by the blood. Of course, the Messiah has come, and He has not covered our sins. He has washed them away for good. Praise the Lord. Once and for all. The Yamim Noraim, it's on your handout. Yamim Noraim are the days of all. These are the days in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. These are the days in between. There's a total of ten days. The scripture says in Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 26, it says, The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. So we see here that Yom Kippur falls on the tenth day of the month. Rosh Hashanah falls on the first day of the month. Therefore, these ten days are called the days of all. Now, I think this is very important, again, for us to understand the book of Revelation. And I think, uh, prayerfully, you'll see this as we, as we look uh, closer at the scripture on the next page. It says here that Yom Kippur is understood in Judaism to be the day of judgment when Adonai opens his books and judges the people. We know, or should know, that the Messiah has the book of life, right? The Sefer Chai, the Sefer Chai, the book of life. These, this is the book where the believers are written. But in the book of Revelation, it says that the Lord will open His books with an S. Not just one book, but He opens His books. And so Judaism has understood from the ancient times that there would be books that were open, and the Lord would judge. Now, I said that there were um, 
Judaism believe that there are three groups of people. There are those who are the holy righteous, those who are the intermediaries, and those who are the uh, uh, Rishon, those who are holy evil. And so, uh, I, in coming up in my understanding of end time events, I was always um, understood that, you know, if somebody was not born again by the time the rapture happened, that was over. Life was, it was it, it was done, you were done. You know, um, and I began to look at that because when I when I was doing my research in the book of Revelation, I came at it from that mentality. But something struck me in the book of Revelation. It talks about um, actually in uh, let's see here. It talks about in Revelation chapter seven. In fact, you can turn there in Revelation chapter seven. We'll be looking at Revelation now as we look at this diagram on the back of your page. Revelation chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 13, the, John the Revelator is seeing this great event in heaven, all these people who are worshiping the Lord. In fact, I want to kind of draw your attention to one particular phrase. It says in verse, at the, towards the end of verse 10, it says that these people who were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits to the, on the throne and to the Lamb. That word palm branches is uh, basically used to speak of the lulav. When I was with you last time, it was tabernacles. We talked about, I think I may have talked about it anyway, the lulav, the four species. It's a palm branch, a myrtle branch, a willow branch, and a citron called an esrog. And it's this is in Scripture. This is command, the Word of God commands us. You know, God commands us to do some unusual things. You know, um, it's like uh, one. In fact, uh, it's kind of funny. We had a couple that joined our congregation, or were thinking about joining our congregation, coming out of a uh, uh, a mainline denomination church. The Lord had opened their eyes to the Hebrew roots, and they wanted to some a little bit more uh, in-depth teaching with respect to that. So they were thinking about coming to our congregation. So they just happened to come uh, last year on Tabernacles. And so there we are in the sanctuary. We're worshiping the Lord. And most everybody has this lul- these lulavs in their hand. And we're worshiping the Lord. Just worshiping and singing, you know, worshiping. And these are, you know, respectable people. They're educated people, you know. And they walked in. Of course, the husband was not as hot about coming as the wife was. And he was kind of coming somewhat reluctantly. So he comes in and they shared with, they confessed to us later. They said, we just, we knew at that moment, y'all were a cult. This is just a bunch of, uh, y'all are crazy. And it was everything we could do to, to not walk out at that moment. Uh, so she, they said they went home, however, didn't say a word to anybody. And I think they'd gotten there late, so they didn't hear my introduction about the Luov. They got, they went home, they looked it up in scripture, and lo and behold, the Lord says, worship with the lulav there in tabernacles, and it explains the four elements, and they said, well, I mean, you know, there it is, uh, you know, and they waved palm branches before the Messiah when he was coming into Jerusalem, when it says here in the scripture that those who are dressed in white and worshiping the Lord are worshiping him with palm branches in their hand. So go figure, the Lord just likes us to worship him with palm branches in our hand, you know, I mean, I don't know. But it says there it is, and that is basically because um, I believe the end time when we are all with God worshiping Him, Tabernacles speaks of that. I think it's very interesting that it includes palm branches in people's hands worshiping the Lord. 
Well, it says here in verse 13, Then one of the elders asked me, these, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? Verse 14 says, And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I read that and went, hmm. There are survivors. There are survivors. So, if you're not born again by the rapture, then maybe there's an opportunity somehow for you to get born again before the great white throne judgment. And there's other places where it talks about survivors or what have you. There's survivors to this pouring out. Now, I submit to you, this is not good. This is not something that people want to be around for. Okay? We're going to see why in just one quick second. But it led me to believe that maybe uh, maybe my theology was wrong, and then the opportunity to, to turn to the living God does not come at the blowing of the shofar, but it comes up until the point of death. Right? Now, that ought to be obvious, but at least in my thinking, I used to think that if you didn't, if you didn't hear, if you weren't saved by the time the angel blew the shofar, that was, oh, you, it was it, but evidently not. Well, if you'll see on this back, uh, page, I, I, I typed out a timeline for you, if you will. During the month, well, I believe right now that prophetically speaking, we are in the month of Elul. We are in the end times, I believe. You know, what does that mean? Does that mean, Rabbi Mark, that uh, the Lord's going to come back next year? Not necessarily. Uh, I know that, how many of you understand that uh, the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and so, um, you know, there's been at least 6,000 years of mankind on, on the earth right now. Um, what's 50 or 100 years compared to 6,000? Right? It's still the end times. If the Lord didn't come until 50 years from now, if He didn't come until 100 years from now, 100 or 50 compared to 6,000 is still the end. If you're in the last five minutes of a football game, it's still the fourth quarter. The end of the fourth quarter, in fact. Right? And so I believe that's where we are. I believe that we are in prophetically this Elul time frame. And I put under here that in, beginning in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, begins to speak about the seven seals, which I believe are the beginning of labor contractions. The beginning of labor contractions. And as we go through these seven seals, it's interesting because you can see that it's possible anyway that some of them, uh, maybe they've been opened, maybe, maybe they are about to be opened, but certainly as we look at these seven seals, we can see that there are things going on in our world right now that are troublesome. In fact, let me give you a statistic. I wish I had this written down. I should have thought about this and written it down so I'd have the exact numbers. So somebody was sharing with me this statistic that um, in the last 1,800 years leading up to the 20th century, there was something to the effect of about 11, uh, give me some grace here on the exact numbers, about, about 11 um, major earthquakes, I think of seven or above on the Richter scale about 11 in 1,800 years. In the 20th century, that number jumped up to about 26 or something to that effect. More than doubled in one century. In 2008, in that one year, there were that many earthquakes. And then in 2009, there were even more than that. And then in 2010, we've seen some major earthquakes. The bottom line is, is that the 
the, the contractual pains leading up to labor, it seems like, have begun. Not only has knowledge increased, not only has wealth increased, but so have these earthquakes and horrible things that have happened. Now we're hearing about earthquakes in Oklahoma City and things like that. I mean, it's just crazy. But it, the, the first seal spoken of in Revelation chapter 6, we'll go through these seals um, somewhat quickly. The first seal is, it speaks about the white horse who's sent out to conquest. It says that I looked in there before me was a white horse, its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, built, bent rather, on conquest. Now, something I want you to see, I should have said this a second ago, I want you to see the escalation. Okay? By the way, when, going back to former years, I used to be a pre-tribulation rapture theory person. I don't know what Pastor Ron is, and, uh, and, or what this congregation teaches, and that's, it's really immaterial, because, because the bottom line is we all need to be prepared no matter what. But in, when we're looking at it, I used to be a pre-tribulation rapture because I, I understood the pattern of God was that His people do not go through the judgment. Why? The, the scripture says that we're, we're saved. How many of you understand we're not saved from the devil? Right? That's what the, the Bible does not say that we're saved from the devil. The Word of God says that we're saved from the wrath of God to come. That's why we're saved. We're not saved from the devil. We're not saved uh, from, uh, from, from sin per se, although we're given the power through the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. The Word of God says we're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from the power of sin, in our, but really the curse of sin in our life. We're saved from that curse. So, um, we're saved from the wrath of God. And so I've understood that the pattern of God, like I shared about Noah and the land of Goshen, the pattern of God is that His people don't undergo His judgment. He didn't save us so that we could be royally punished. and all of it, He didn't save us so that His wrath could be poured out upon us. In other words, we understand that Messiah Yeshua took the wrath of God for us. So He's not going to, uh, hypothetically, so to speak, or metaphorically strap us to a pole and whip our back or drive nails in our hand and put us into a into a, a cross because Messiah has endured that for us. The wrath of God, no, is reserved for those uh, angels who rebelled against the living God and for the unbeliever. And so with that, I understood, well, Lord, it has to be a pre-tribulation rapture. But after, again, after reading the book of Revelation, Again, I thought, well, that's troublesome because it says that during the tribulation time, there are believers in the earth. How could that be? And so I've come to the conclusion in what's uh, basically called a mid-trib tribulation rapture theory. But I think that's because we have two, in my opinion, we have uh, terminology confused. There is a tribulation and there is the wrath of God. And there are two different things, I believe. And we'll look at that. Going, continue with the seals. The second seal is a red horse where it says that peace is removed from the earth. How many of you would agree that peace is being removed from the earth? They're having riots in France right now because they raised the retirement age by two years. Major riots. Because they raised the retirement age by two years. Peace being removed from the earth. Very dangerous situation. Perfect opportunity for Al-Qaeda to act in France right now. Um, 
there's very few places you can go. Look at Mexico. Look at other parts of Europe. There's very few places you can go where you don't have to be mindful of your surroundings. There used to be havens. We had some friends in our congregation who recently went down to Cabo, Mexico, and they were taking precautions because some of the cartel violence has already erupted in Cabo, areas where they thought were protected and shielded from that kind of thing. Peace being removed from the earth. The third seal is the black horse of famine. It says in the Scripture that a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. That's speaking of famine. It's talking about when bread prices skyrocket. You say, all oh, that can't happen. Listen, it's happened before on numerous occasions where bread is suddenly so expensive you just can't afford to buy it. Uh, the fourth seal is the pale horse where a quarter of the earth uh, is killed by famine, plague, sword, and wild beasts. Now, I want you to see the escalation, because this says a quarter of the earth. Now, that's bad. If, if the quarter of the population of the earth died, how many of you agree that would be really bad? Okay? That's still not the wrath of God. We'll see that in a second. The fifth seal talks about the martyrs crying out to the Lord and asking when is He going to uh, avenge, essentially, their blood. Verse or the sixth seal speaks about a great earthquake. This is a very powerful earthquake, but it's still not the most powerful earthquake. It destroys a lot of stuff. It says here that there was a great earthquake. The sun turned back like sackcloth made of goat's hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth. One time I had a, I was in the service out in North Carolina. And I had gone home and had flown back, and my plane uh, ride got in late that night. And I was driving back to the base in my little car all alone on this little two-lane highway in the middle of North Carolina, just driving all by myself, not a, not a car in sight for miles. And that night it happened to be one of those blood-red moon nights, you know, where the moon is like this big in the sky and it's blood-red. And you want to talk about a little young man that, Nobody's around. I got real fearful. I can't, I had to come to, come to Yeshua meeting right there in my car. <laughs> Lord, blood red moon, nobody's around. Why am I still here? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I did a lot of confessing and repenting that night on the way back to the base. And then the seventh seal is the seven trumpets being given to the seven angels. That's the seventh seal. Okay? We move from the seven seals into the seven trumpets from Revelation 8, 7 through eleven nineteen, And this is what I believe begins the tribulation period. Now, I say there's a difference between tribulation and wrath of God because um, how many of you understand that the, the Holocaust was a very serious tribulation for the Jewish people? That's a tribulation. Still not the wrath of God. How many of you know that people, there are people in the world who would like to see the Holocaust happen again, and they'd like to see it include more people, such as you and I? And how many of you know if we ever had, if we, God forbid, ever had to endure a Holocaust, it would be a tribulation for us? In fact, I have a book. I was just reading it before I came here tonight, uh, detailing some other things about the Holocaust, horrible things. It's a Jewish book written by Jewish authors, uh, recounting events and things that happened, and Things that just really, frankly, shouldn't be... I couldn't really repeat it to the congregation. It's just too terrible. I thought, that's a tribulation. The, the seven trumpets, three and a half years of tribulation. The first trumpet is hail and fire. 
A third of the earth, trees and grass are destroyed. Now we've gone from a quarter to a third. The second trumpet, a blazing mountain, the Scripture says, is cast into the sea, and a third of the sea creatures and ships are destroyed. That's pretty terrible, but it's still not the wrath of God. It's tribulation, no doubt. It's bad. The third trumpet, a star called Wormwood falls to the ground, falls to the earth. And a third of the waters turn to poison. That's very bad, but it's still only a third. It's not the wrath of God. Not yet. The fifth trumpet is released. And stinging locusts are loosed to harm unbelievers. Now, you can read this in Revelation chapter, I believe it's chapter um, 9. It says that the, out of the abyss come these locusts. I believe it's chapter 9 here. And it says that the uh, the Lord tells them that not to harm the vegetation, but to go and take all of those or, 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 or uh, torture all of those who do not have, who do not have the seal of God in their forehead. Seal of God in their forehead. You know, by the way, I was writing a paper to our people talking about the shaman. I won't go into all that, but um, uh, the the little box that Jews wear on their foreheads and uh, on their hands. They don't wear the box on their hands. They wear the box on their forehead. It's called the Tefillin. It, it contains the Shema, which means, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It's your verse that you have on the wall back there, in fact. Well, the Scripture says, the Lord says, I want you to take my commandments, take this Shema, and put it in your forehead and on your hand. Right? Now, isn't it interesting that the Antichrist wants to put his mark on our forehead or on our hand? And the Scripture says right here, by the way, the high priest wore his uh, his vestment when he was worshiping before the Lord. The Lord says, I want you to wear a turban on your head. And on that turban, I want you to put uh, Kadosh Le Adonai which says, holy unto the Lord. And guess what it was? It was on his forehead, a gold plate on his forehead. And so the Scripture says here, those who are not sealed in the forehead or sealed by the Lord their God, these locusts are going to sting them. Those who are not sealed. And it says they're going to wish they were dead, but they don't die. They just get stung. For five months they're being stung. And it says that the Lord empowers these uh, locusts to have scorpion-like stings. Some people have said, well, it could be Apache helicopters and all that could be. I'm not going to say definitely. No, it's not. But I'm just going to stick with what the scripture says. It says scorpions, or excuse me, locusts. This thing like scorpions. Whatever it is, it doesn't sound good. I don't want to be involved in that. I want to be sealed in the Lord. The uh, sixth trumpet blast says that four demons are loosed to kill. Should say kill a third of mankind. A third of mankind. I say demons because the Scripture says there are angels that have been bound and chained until this time. Now, they've got to be demons because righteous or godly angels are not going to be bound and chained. Okay? These are demons. Demons are loosed. Fallen angels are loosed, four of them, to kill all of mankind. Now, look at Revelation chapter 11. My time just flies by and I've got to quickly get to the day's ball because I've got to show you this. But I want to show you this. When the seventh trumpet is blown, in Revelation 11:15, 15, 
when the seventh trumpet is blown, it says that there were voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and our, of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Now, this is very important because in Judaism, it's understood that on Rosh Hashanah, when that trumpet is blown, that the Messianic kingdom begins at that moment. The Messianic kingdom begins. Doesn't mean that it's complete, but it begins. And so it says right here, the kingdom of the world has become now the kingdom of the Lord and His Christ. It goes on to say in verse 16, We give thanks to you, Lord our God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Have begun to reign. It seems congruent with Jewish thought. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging, listen to this, for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants of prophets and your saints and those who, who re, uh, reverence your name, both small and great. Now listen, he says to judge the dead and to judge your prophets and to judge your saints. Who's he talking about? Those who reverence your name, small and great alike. So this is a judgment for the believer, I believe. Because talking about those who reverence your name. This is not for the unbelievers. They're still in the grave or they're still on the earth. Now, that's the rapture. That's the seventh trumpet, which happens on Rosh Hashanah. Now, the next, the, the preceding, or the, not the preceding days, but the days to come are the days of awe. And this is where now things shift. We've had a really bad tribulation. This has not been fun. I wish I could get into Revelation chapter 12 with you, but I can't. You really need to re read Revelation chapter 12 because I believe the woman in Revelation chapter 12 represents the believers. And she's hidden away. The dragon makes war against her and she's protected and hidden, but he, he prevails against her until the rapture, I believe. The days of all begin and now we transition from trumpets now to golden bowls of wrath. And I want you to pick up on the difference between what we just read and now what we're reading. Okay? The wrath of God, the bowls of God poured out begins in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 5 and continues to through until you get to Revelation 16.21. The first bowl poured out is painful sores. Boils. Okay, praise the Lord, we're, not, we're in heaven at this point, I believe. The second bowl that's poured out is the sea is turned to blood and all dies. Everything dies. Not a third, not a fourth, everything. The sea, everything, the whole sea dies, it perishes. That's what the scripture says. The third bowl is poured out and all the waters turn to blood. Not a third, not a quarter, all of the water turns to blood. Okay? Number four, the fourth ball, sun, the sun scorches all the people. All the people. The scorching heat, so scorching that people curse God because it's so scorching because of His plagues. The sixth ball is poured out and the, the river Euphrates dries up and it if you read that verse, you'll see that it's it's making way for a great multitude, a great army. But the the uh, Euphrates dries up, and in, and the seventh bowl is the greatest earthquake of all time hits. And the scripture says literally that all cities, all mountain ranges, and all islands are destroyed. 
Now, we had a great earthquakes in the seal. We had a great earthquake, you know, we had great things happening, you know, uh, in the, uh, in the trumpets. But this is the wrath of God. This is where everything is demolished. It even says that Jerusalem is split. The great city. All cities, mountain ranges, islands destroyed. This is a massive, massive earthquake. Now, I want you to see this because on, on, the, bo- on the bottom I made a little diagram of the days of all. Because this is the template, I think, that if you fill in the blanks here. Day one is Rosh Hashanah. It's the rapture. The first day of awe. How many of you know that when the rapture occurs, it's going to be a day of awe for the peoples of the earth? And Revelation, uh, the first part of, the, of chapter 11, it speaks about the two witnesses. And, and, and they go around witnessing and witnessing for three and a half years, 1260 days. You, you do, uh, multiply that by the Jewish month, 30 days in a month, 12 months in a year, it's 1260 days. It says that they're killed. They, nobody will let them be buried. Nobody's mocking them. And then suddenly... They wake up and they hear a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. I believe that's the rapture. When the two witnesses are called up, I believe everybody's called up. When they wake up and hear the voice come up here, I believe all of us hear the voice come up here at that moment. And it's going to be a day of awe for the entire earth, in my opinion. The second day of the day of awe is bowl one. The third day, bowl two. The fourth day, bowl three. So on until the eighth day, bowl seven. But we've got a problem here because we've got to fit, we've got to, if this is correct, then we've got to fit this in, we've got to fit Revelation into the days of awe. Well, the seventh bowl is the seventh bowl. A great earthquake, but that's not the end of the story. The Word of God says that Armageddon is coming. And so the ninth day of the day of awe is the, is the battle of Armageddon. What it says, by the way, in Revelation 19.14, it talks about that great battle. It says in Revelation 19.14 that the Messiah is seen on a white horse coming to make war against those who have drawn up against Jerusalem. And on his vestments, he's wearing a vestment dipped in blood and upon it is written in Hebrew, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And behind him on white horses, it said, are the armies of the kingdom of heaven wearing white robes. And a few verses before that, it says that the white robes symbolize the righteousness of the saints. So it's the saints of God. It is us with Him on those horses coming back for Armageddon. That's the ninth day of the day of all. Days of all. And the tenth day of the days of all is the great, the great white throne judgment. And then immediately following that, Thank God, as Revelation 21 that speaks about the new heavens and the new earth, which is ostensibly tabernacles. And the Lord making His dwelling with us forever and ever. And I made some uh, notes here on on the little box, major points to remember. And I encourage you to read these scriptures uh, that will, you'll see in the, in the book of Isaiah as well as three other places in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, that the shofar call is uh, throughout speaking of the rapture of the believers. Now, this is my, uh, this is what I believe uh, is the Jewish thought concerning the end times and the messianic viewpoint of how to understand the book of Revelation. 
And what's critical to me, I believe, and any Bible teacher that is talking about end time events is that we use God's prophetic plan. He gave us the feast of the Lord to show us what He has done, what He's going to do, and what He's doing now. And I should note, by the way, and you probably already know this because I know Pastor Ron is really in tune with so much, but um, the the Lord fulfilled the Feast of Pesach, the Feast of Passover, on the day, at the very hour. He fulfilled the festival of, of Shavuot, of Pentecost, on the day, at the very hour. And if that's been the Lord's past uh, plan, in fact, He was rolled out of the tomb on the Feast of First Fruits, if that was His past plan, why wouldn't He do the same with the remaining feast in the fall? And so as we're looking at that, we know that He's got to fulfill the meaning of these feasts on the day and on the hour of their timing. Amen. Thank you so much for allowing me to come again tonight. Yes. Questions? Oh, the shofar, yes. This is the shofar. Take one. That's the shofar blast. That's what we can hear. We will hear one of these days when the angels of the Lord blow it. My friend was going to tease me one time on Rosh Hashanah. He said, and stand outside of my house and blow the shofar by my bedroom window. <laughs> he was going to plan, he was planning to have my wife up and her clothes neatly folded on the, on the bed. <laughs> Almost pulled it off, but didn't quite do it. I hope it's been interesting to you anyway. Is there any questions you all have about this? Or? Yes, sir. Well, that's interesting. Well, of course, they call, the Hebrew name is um, um, it's it's actually Megiddo. It's the yes yeah, Megiddo, and it's it's uh, in the Greek. I think they probably translate it Armageddon, or it's probably a derivative of that. But uh, technically, he's right. It's the Valley of Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo is the, um, I always get the two valleys. What's the valley's name? I always get them confused. Jezreel. Jezreel. Yeah. Yeah, I always get the Kishron and the Jezreel confused. We've had the, we've, we've been, um, had the honor to go to Israel, uh, many times. And, um, one, we've gone to Megiddo several times. And it's really, when, when you go to Israel, I encourage you all to go. Uh, it's safe to go there, you know. Uh, obviously don't go in the bad neighborhoods like you would in Dallas, but, <clears throat> um, I mean, you know, uh, maybe, Lord willing, we'll take Pastor Ron there sometime, but you need to go. Anyway, we've gone to Megiddo several times. One one time, we were there, and uh, they do a lot of their military training over that valley. It's a perfect battlefield, and it's a perfect crossroads for Israel. And the Jews know there's going to be a major battle there someday. And they do a lot of their training. There's Air Force bases there and everything. Well, off in the distance, it was evidently they, there was evidently a military shooting range. You could hear the, 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 the machine guns. And so I'm, in, I'm standing in Megiddo, which is a, which is a, like a hill, kind of a, not really a mountain, but a hill. 
And it's a tell, actually, in Hebrew, which means that it's a civilizations have built on top of civilizations and it creates a mound. And Solomon had his um, stables there. It's changed hands like a million times over the course of the centuries. Well, anyway, so we're we're looking out over the Jezreel Valley and we hear da 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 And about that time, here come Israeli fighter jets. And they're zigzagging across, you know, the valley. And we're sitting there going, well, I guess now's a good time as any. I mean, you know, I mean, it was so surreal. You know, there you are, right there. But yeah, it's uh, technically he's correct, but I don't get to. Uh, it's very large. Well, I mean, I mean, it's as far as you can see. Major highway goes through the middle of it. A lot of cultivating and vegetation crops and everything. Um, they have so many different crops there, weed and different things. And it's, in fact, we went to the place. When you go to Israel, there's a place they call Elijah Cave. Don't go there. It's a tourist trap. It's not Elijah's cave. Elijah Cage, Cage. The cave that Elijah went to is, uh, on Mount Sinai which is in Arabia, the southern peninsula of Arabia, which you can't get there because they won't let you in. Um, they won't let any of us in. They've got this, uh, we've got this, they've got this, this Mount Sinai in Arabia. They have a fence around. It's the middle of nowhere. They've got a fence around it with armed guards and a big sign in English and in Arabic, keep out. And the reason is because it's the place where the Lord descended from the heavens to the earth. But that's where Elijah went. That's where his, the cave was. But they say it's on Mount Carmel, but it's not. Um, Mount Carmel is actually a mountain range. It's a very, very large mountain. And Haifa is built up on it. Uh, so you have Haifa the co- uh, on the coast, and then it kind of like, you know, goes up the side of the mountain, and that's Mount Carmel. So we went to the spot on Mount Carmel where everybody knows who are natives, you know, they're Israelites, understand that this is where the Elijah called down fire from heaven. And it's in a very secluded part. You've got to know how to get, I know how to get there now, praise the Lord, because I was shown I was driving at the time. I rented a car and we drove up there. But it's a secluded place. You've got to kind of find your way around there. But what's really great is that you, you're standing on these beautifully rock cliff-like thing, and you're, over, you're overlooking the Jezreel Valley. And we went up there and blew shofars and prayed. He was overlooking the Mediterranean too. The Mediterranean's here to your left. We blew shofars and prayed over that area and asked the Lord to open the eyes of our brothers and sisters in the land, etc. But yes, it's a very, very large valley. 